In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I would ask that you, through the preaching of your word today, would show us our need for a king, Jesus. I pray, dear Lord, that we would do that which is pleasing in your eyes. Help me, Lord, as I am now beginning a new book. I pray, dear Lord, that I would very quickly become accustomed to the literature and that I would present it in a way which is understandable. More than that, dear Lord, I pray that I would present it in a way which is compassionate and convincing. I pray, dear God, that we would be different today, having heard the word of God. So, Lord, please, by your spirit, speak to us and teach us so that we might do your holy will and that we might see Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this verse is the final verse in the book of Judges, and it anticipates a a monarch who will reign with objective standards, and this king is Jesus, and his legislation is the word of God. The Old Testament book of Judges, probably written by Samuel, shows us our need for King Jesus. The book of Judges is rough, it is repetitive, it is rhetorical, and it is redemptive. Uh, This is a rough book. I was speaking to my friend Brian Davis this week, and I was telling him that I was going to begin the book of Judges, and I said, you know, a lot of this book is PG-13, and Brian said, yes, I agree with you, much of this book is PG-13, and the rest of it is rated R. Uh, This is a book which is graphic and gory and spicy and salacious. It exhibits excessive wickedness. And so I'm going to do my best in mixed company to speak cryptically and euphemistically, but please be forewarned, there are some rough narratives here. Not only is it a rough book, but it is a repetitive book. There is a cycle of events in this book which is on a loop. The names, the places, the enemies, they change, but the plots are interchangeable. It goes like this. The people of Israel sin against God. God chastens them with servitude and suffering. They cry out to God in supplication. He provides salvation through a leader known as a judge. They enjoy a season of solace, and then they forget God and go back to their sin, rinse and repeat many times over. It is repetitive. It is known as the cycle of the judges. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, solace, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, solace, sin, and so forth. Not only is it repetitive, but it is rhetorical. And by that I mean the author, probably Samuel, has an agenda, a theological agenda, and he employs countless literary devices in order to build his case. Judges is historically accurate. These things did indeed happen. But it is not a traditional history book that runs in chronological order. Everything that we have had up to the Bible, up in the Bible so far is chronological. The first six books of the Bible. Genesis is chronological. Uh, In Exodus, it is chronological. Joshua is a chronological narrative. Children of Israel are in Egypt, in slavery. They come out under the 
leadership of Moses, and they are in the wilderness for 40 years. That is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It runs front to back. Moses dies, and Joshua takes over, and the people go into the promised land, and they possess the land. That is the book of Joshua front to back. But now when you get to the book of Judges, it explains what happens over the next several hundred years, but it is not written in chronological order. Many of the events in this book happen simultaneously. Uh, For example, the events that we read about in the final five chapters of the book of Judges happened actually at the beginning of the days when the judges ruled. Another thing to note about the rhetorical style of this book, you would read this book and you would think, well, the men and women who are judges here, that they are national leaders or presidents or kings or queens, and that's not true at all. They were not national leaders who were rallied to unite the entire nation. They were regional generals who influenced and protected one or at most two of the tribes. Interestingly, the 12 judges written about in the book of Judges each come from one different tribe. The first judge, and this is important to remember, Othniel is the best judge, and he comes from the most important tribe. Uh, The reason that it is important to note that Othniel is the best judge who comes from the most important tribe is that because from the tribe of Judah, there is a king that is going to arise, and this king is going to be born in Bethlehem, and his name is David, and that king is going to set the stage for the king who is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judah, and that is Jesus Christ. And so the book of Judges is bracketed by Judah. At the beginning, the people of Israel ask, who's going to be the first to go up and fight for us? And God says, going to be Judah. At the end of the book of Judges, when they are going to battle, again, the same question is asked, and it is answered in the same way in chapter 20, verse 18. It is Judah that is going to go up and fight for us. It is a book about the prominence of the the tribe of Judah. Conversely, the most deplorable tribe in the book of Judges is is the tribe of Benjamin. There is an incident which happens at the end of this book, which, Lord willing, we're going to be studying a few months from now, which happens in Gibeah of Benjamin, where the people of that city are acting so deplorably, it reminds us of what has happened in Genesis 19 in Sodom. Well, guess what? There was a man who was born later in Gibeah of Benjamin, and his name was Saul. And the point of this is Israel... Please look to Judah for your king, not to Benjamin. Look to David and not to Saul. Look to Jesus and not to yourself and not to the world. It is a rhetorical book. And the rhetoric of this book uses numbers. And these numbers, for the most part, are rounded off. And sometimes these numbers are symbolic. And so as we go through the book, I'm going to do the very best that I can to point out how the text is arranged theologically with that agenda and not a chronological history. Book of Judges is rough, it is repetitive, it is rhetorical, and most importantly, it is redemptive. It is a book about salvation. Redemption is found only in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the book of Judges is that Jesus is better than anything in self-styled anarchistic Judaism, 
and Jesus, and Jesus alone brings redemption, and Jesus is all over the book of Judges in types and shadows and prophecies. We are people who need redemption. We are people who need salvation. You read the book of Judges, and you will see that the Holy Spirit, who is the divine author, never covers up the blemishes of God's people. The book of Judges teaches us that the people of God are bad people, but he loves them and he saves them. He redeems them. It is a book that is redemptive. So it's rough. It is repetitive. It is rhetorical. It is redemptive. And today, what we are going to attempt to do is to cover 41 verses. That is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 5. Interestingly, the book of Judges has not one, but two introductions. Today, we're going to do the first introduction in those 41 verses, and then, Lord willing, next week, when we meet out on the lawn, we're going to do the second introduction, which starts in chapter 2, verse 6. But as we look at chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, 5, I've broken it down into two main points, and those two main points very simply are point number one, obedience, and point number two, partial obedience, which is just another way of saying disobedience. So get the big picture. Tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, is obedient. That's point number one. They go into Canaanite cities and to the countryside, and they destroy the inhabitants as they have been commanded to do. That's point number one, generally speaking. And then point number two is that most of the other tribes are not obedient. They do not fully do that. But before we get to these two points, let's take a step back and answer the question, why in the world do they need to take complete possession of the land and destroy all of the inhabitants? We can even back up further than that and say, what is the land? Like, what are we even talking about here? What land? And why is it so significant? Well, in order to answer the question, uh, you have to look at the phrase, the promised land. You've heard that phrase before. What does it mean? Well, its origin comes from God who makes a promise to a man by the name of Abraham, who was from Ur of the Chaldees, that his descendants would own and possess the land of Canaan. God did not give the land to Abraham, but he promised it to his descendants, which was a very unusual promise, seeing as how God gave it to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old and he didn't have any children yet. Now, fast forward 700 years, give or take. We're not exactly sure of the exact numbers, Biblical scholars um, disagree amongst themselves as to how many hundreds of years passed between the time of Abraham and the time of the um, conquest of the land and the time of the judges. We're not really sure, but give or take about 700 years, God makes good on his promise. Now, you have to ask the question, why was there such a gap in time between the promise that God gave to Abraham and the actual possession of the land? And it is answered in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God's making his covenant with Abraham, and he tells him why this is going to take such a long time. Genesis 15, 16. And they, that is your descendants, Abraham, shall come back here, that is back from Egypt, in the fourth generation, that is four generations of slavery. Why is it going to take that long? Well, God says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, these people are bad, but they are not yet so bad 
that I'm going to completely destroy them. It's going to take a couple hundred years. So give or take 700 years, it is going to fill up to the brim, and then it will be time for judgment. And by the time Joshua enters the land, the iniquity of the inhabitants of the land was complete. It was fully ripe. So here's the command. Go in and take complete possession of the land and destroy all of the people. That is a clear command. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. You shall devote them to complete destruction. Do you know what that means? It means that you shall devote them to complete destruction. Why were the Israelites supposed to do this? Well, we are told in Deuteronomy 20, 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you shall sin against the Lord your God. In other words, if you do not kill all of them completely, what's going to happen is they're going to start to become your teachers and they're going to become your disciples or they're going to teach you how to become idolatrous. Therefore, kill them all. Wow. It's 2022. And, 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 and we're, we're actually reading about complete annihilation of people. I think it is amazing how sympathetic 21st century Americans are towards Canaanites from the ancient Near East. But the fact of the matter is, their sin was to the brim, and it was judgment day. And so the question now for Israel is this. Are they going to be obedient and go in and fully occupy the land and commit the people to complete destruction, or are they going to disobey? That's the big picture. Do you understand? There's a man by the name of Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham has a son. His son Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. God has promised Abraham, the land is going to belong to your descendants. Well, one of Jacob's, one of Jacob's son, Joseph, moves the family into Egypt. Time passes. The people of Israel go into slavery in Egypt. They stay multiple hundreds of years. The number grows larger and larger. They become roughly two million people. They leave Egypt in what is known as the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. They wander around for 40 years toward the promised land. That is the land that God promised to give to the descendants of Abraham. And then Moses dies and Joshua takes over and they go in and they possess the land. That's the book of Joshua. But here's the key. They do not fully possessed the land at that time. Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. God is a truth teller. And there remains yet very much land to possess. You've done a good job, but you haven't done a complete job. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. The people of Israel owned all the land, but they didn't possess all of it, and therefore they couldn't enjoy all of it. Several years ago, I had a friend who received a call from his uncle. His uncle was doing very poorly. So we went to visit his uncle, and in going to visit his uncle, he discovered that the poor man was living in squalor. The man was a hoarder, and he his house was filled. You could barely walk through the house. The man was living as a pauper. He had next to nothing to eat. The man was suffering there. And so my friend starts to go through all of the items in the house, and he discovers that the man living there has stacks and stacks of uncashed checks. 
The man was actually very wealthy. He just was too lazy to go to the bank to cash his checks. What we are reading about here in the book of Judges is an account of God telling the people to go ahead and cash those checks. I'm giving you the power. It has been granted to you. Now go and obey. So that's the outline. Obedience. Some of the tribes obey, mostly the tribe of Judah, and partial obedience, known as disobedience, and that is that most of the tribes do not do that. that that's the big picture. I, I hope you got that. Now let's break it down into the two points. Point number one, obedience. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1, I'll read the first two verses. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. It's really interesting here how many books of the Bible start with the death or the departure or the absence of someone who is really important. Have you ever noticed that? When you get to the book of Exodus, the first thing that you read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, is that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. In other words, the book is cast in the setting of Joseph now being gone. When you get to the book of Joshua, the opening line of the book of Joshua is after the death of Moses. When you get to 1 Samuel, early on in the book, you see Eli, the priest, dying. When you get to 2 Samuel, the first person that happens to die in the first chapter is Saul. In 1 Kings, chapter 1, David dies. And at the beginning of 2 Kings, Elijah dies. And even when you get to the book of Acts, there is the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven and his physical absence from earth and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why do so many books of the Bible start with the departure or absence or death of someone that is important? It is because it is God's way of saying that his work continues from generation to generation. Every history book has this in common. And that is that nobody sticks around forever. However, even though people move on, his truth is marching on. Julia Ward, how 1862. And he doesn't need any of us to continue. And so Joshua is dead. There is no leader. What do we do next? Let's ask God. So what did they do? They asked God and God revealed his will. How did God reveal his will? Well, probably through something called the Urim and the Thummim. Now, what is that? That appears in Exodus 28.30 for the first time. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it was a way that they could determine the will of God. It had something to do with stones in the breastplate of the priest. Again, how it actually worked, we're not exactly sure. Maybe it prompted the priest to give a prophecy, we're not exactly sure, but we do know that the way that Israel determined the will of God was through the Urim and the Thummim. And, and as we are reading here in Judges chapter 1, we can probably guess that that was the way that they determined uh, the will of God, and this is how they got direction. But this is not the only example of them using the Urim and the Thummim. I think this is just one example. In fact, I think it could be said that this is nothing more than a Urim sample. <laughs> a Urim sample. 
In any event, here's what's happening. The tribe of Judah is significant, and they are chosen to go up to battle. Uh, The phrase go up appears many times in the passage, and it means more than just batter up or going up in elevation. Uh, It's it's a, a literary marker. I talked about rhetoric earlier. It's a literary marker with spiritual significance as if to say, Judah will lead the way up to our rise of success. And in verse three, Judah employs the help of a smaller, less significant tribe known as Simeon, and Simeon was within the borders of Judah. And so in chapter 1, verse 3, they employ the help of Simeon, and then in verse 4, they see great success. Look in verse 4. Then Judah went up, there's that phrase again, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now the entire land is known as the land of Canaan. When we speak about Canaanites, this is referring to people who would live in cities with fortifications. When we read about parasites, not parasites, but parasites, they were people who lived in more rural areas with unwalled or unfortified cities. And the Bible says Judah goes up, fights against both of them, and sees great success, and 10,000 people go down. Once again, I think that this number is a rhetorical device, and it is not intended to be an exact device. Readers in the ancient Near East would recognize it to be a number that is over the top. Uh, The number 10,000 is the ancient Near East uh, equivalent of a kajillion. Even today, we use the number 10,000 to represent a a very large number. When we've been there 10,000 years, it it just means a very large number. So they're seeing great success, and, and, and Judah and Simeon are taking out the Perizzites and the Canaanites. But when we get to chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, we see an example of their success in the first story in the book of Judges find it to be a very interesting and fascinating story. Listen as I read verses 5 through 7. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled or ran away, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so Elohim, not Yahweh, but Elohim has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. A really interesting story. Now it's, it's, it's a significant story for me. Because anytime I am pressed into service without much warning to do a children's devotional, I go immediately to Judges chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, it gives me an opportunity to stand in front of the children and to take off my thumb. Okay, that's interesting. Secondly, what I will do as an illustration is I will ask a student to come forward ask the student to untie one of their shoes, and then ask them, if they can, to tie their shoes but not to use their thumbs, which no child has ever been able to do that. 
And I illustrate with that the reason why these thumbs were cut off and the big toes were cut off was not to inflict pain upon these kings, but it was to humiliate them. Uh, it was to render them ineffective for battle, and it was to render them ineffective to run or to be mobile. Uh, it, it's a really interesting story. What can we learn from this story, however? Why is it in the book of Judges? Well, the first thing I think that we can learn from this Adonai Bezik story is that this guy who is a pagan king, he doesn't have the law of God. He understands the golden rule. Uh, he understands divine justice. Now, now, granted, he, he does not know Jehovah God. He refers to God as Elohim. Probably for him, this is just a matter of karma or something like that. But what he is saying is actually true. I humiliated 70 other kings, rendering them unfit for war and unfit for mobility. And for sport, I kept them around and I watched them grovel at my table and, 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 and try to pick up food without their thumbs. I was cruel. I was humiliating toward them. Now what I have done to others, well, God Elohim has done to me. What goes around comes around, or as Bob Dylan put it, you used to laugh about everybody who was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud, and now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging for your next meal. So, Adonai Bezek, how does it feel to be on your own without your thumbs trying to pick up crumbs? Or as Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That's a good story, and it's true. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's here in the book of Judges also, in part, to explain why the, the sin of the Canaanites was so ripe why the judgment of God was pressing upon them so heavily. The judgment of God is brought upon the Canaanites who are well-deserving of that judgment. One Bible commentator by the name of Barry Webb writes this about Adonai Bezek. As a leader, he is more than just a random individual. He represents the kind of Canaanite regimes that God is overthrowing through the Israelites, the agents of God's judgment. This narrative cameo opens a window onto the Canaanite culture as embodied in its leaders, a culture ripe for judgment, a culture whose day of reckoning has come. You understand what he said? We have this illustration of Adonai Bezek in order to show that these were some nasty, funky, wicked people, and they were getting what they deserved. It's a snapshot of how Canaanite iniquity had come to the brim, and so don't feel sorry for them. But I think there's more we can learn from these three little verses, and that is we can learn of the mercy of God toward his people. Adonai Bezek is not one of God's people, but God shows mercy to his people. Now, how do we learn mercy from this story? Well, God shows justice to Adonai Bezek. And he got what he deserved. And if God was going to deal with his own people, Israel, and give these people what they deserved, well, then they too would get judgment. One Bible commentator by the name of Kalos and Younger Jr. writes, if the same measure of justice were placed on Israel, Israel would face a similar fate 
as the Lord of Bezek. And therefore, God's judgment on the Lord of Bezek shows his grace toward Israel. Israel's grace is heightened, end quote, and amen. You see, anytime we see the justice and the judgment of God exercised, it should be a reminder to us that for some strange reason, some amazing grace, we ourselves have never known that judgment, nor will we ever know it if we are in Christ. And the reason we will not know it is because our judgment day happened on Mount Calvary when God poured out his wrath on his son in place of us. God is going to catch up with every Adonai Bezik. There is no doubt. God is not mocked. And when he does, it should remind us of how merciful he has been to us. And therefore, we should praise his grace and his mercy toward us. When we see the wicked fall, we should thank him that we are still standing. Seeing the judgment of the wicked is a kind, loud, helpful sermon to the elect. And it reminds us of God's mercy and his grace toward us. The reason why is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Not that we are any better than Adonai Bezek. Not that we are more worthy than he was. We are not and we are not. No, here's who we are. Titus chapter 3, verse 2. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, cutting off people's thumbs and toes, hated and hated by one another. Verse 4. But when the goodness of God and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Why? Because we were so good? No, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, the difference at the core between Adonai Bezik and me is nothing, The difference in the end is that God has chosen to show mercy to me. And for that, I must be grateful. The difference between Adonai Bezik and the children of Israel is nothing. The children of Israel had Jesus Christ as their savior and Adonai Bezik did not. So what do we have going on in New York City today? Well, there is a parade in Manhattan It's a parade in which people will gather in order to celebrate their sin. It is the pride parade, and there will be a large celebration in defiance of God. Uh, Homosexuality is an abomination. It is a sin. The wrath of God awaits the homosexual. Hearing about that should cause us to be grieved, and it should disgust us, for this is disgusting. However... That is not primarily what we should be seeing and feeling when we hear about the parade. What you should primarily be feeling is this. If it were not for the grace of God, that would be me, for I am no better. In fact, I, knowing me, know that I am worse. So I look at it, and I am grieved but I am looking at it primarily saying, God, thank you for showing me mercy. I certainly didn't deserve it. 
I mean, this guy had an Ibizic. He, he, I don't know how he does this, but he understands the golden rule. He does not have the law of God, but he understands you do something to someone, it's going to come back on you. That's a pretty good understanding of, of, of biblical justice. But he has no relationship with God. He's getting justice. On the other hand, the people of God who were in a covenant relationship with God, while that covenant was being established on Mount Sinai, the people of God who have just been redeemed out of Egypt with countless miracles are at the base of the mountain in a drunken orgy, worshiping a golden calf, saying of that calf, that calf is the one that brought us out of slavery. God should have vaporized them. And God should vaporize me. But he didn't because he's merciful and because he's kind. And so when you see God's justice, look at it and thank him that he didn't give you what you deserved. Adonai Bezak got what he deserved. We do not get what we deserve in Christ. We get grace and mercy. It should cause us to be thankful. Moving on in the text. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about obedience, and we're talking about the obedience of the tribes of Judah and Simeon. In verses 8, 9, and 10, and I hope you're looking at your Bible, in verses 8, 9, and 10, they, they sack Jerusalem, and, and they sack Hebron. And, and they continued to be obedient. An illustration of this is someone from the tribe of Judah. He's going to end up being the first judge. His name is Othniel. He is the nephew of Caleb, who we met back in the book of Numbers. And he is courageous, Othniel is, and he captures Kiriath-Sefer, which is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Because of this act of bravery, he earns a wife, and that is Caleb's daughter, which means he married his cousin, which is another sermon for another day. But for now, he gets a wife. Her name is Aksa, and this woman has great foresight. And she asks her father for a water supply, which is brilliant. I've often wondered why in the game of Monopoly is waterworks so cheap and why is the payoff so little? Water is pretty important. She learns this, and Othniel obediently goes after this property, and he wins the battle. And he becomes, as I said, one of the judges, the best of the judges, and, of course, the judge from the tribe of Judah. The obedience continues in verse 17, where Judah and Simeon, look at your Bible, go into Zephath and totally destroy it as God commanded. In verses 18, 19, and 20, there is more obedience and more victory, this time especially among the Philistines. And then there's one more example of obedience in verses 22 through 26. These are the tribes of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. They strike down and defeat a city by the name of Bethel, which is 12 miles north of Jerusalem. The way that they capture this is by seeing a man who's leaving the city. They take the man and they say, listen, we're going to make a deal with you, just like they made with Rahab. Show us the secret passageway into the city, and if you do that, we will spare you and your family. The man shows them the way into the city, and they spare his family. So as you see through the first half of this chapter, there's a lot of obedience, and there's a lot of uh, success. Now, I didn't go into detail. Uh, there's a lot of points that I could have made that I didn't make, but I think you get the overarching point. Here we have 
obedience, and success. Which brings us to point number two, and there you have partial obedience, which is actually disobedience. We see a lot of compromise in the second half of the chapter. It begins most notably with the tribe of Benjamin in verse 21. But, by contrast, and that's an important word, that word but, but in contrast to Judah, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That is the day when the book of Judges was written. Should have gone in, should have run those people out completely. They chose not to. What was the result? The Jebusites stuck around and they were a problem to the Benjamites until that day. We see it also in verse 27. And I want you to notice the rhythm and the cadence of the partial obedience. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheehan. Looking down in verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And in verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And so the result is that over time, these Canaanites who were not completely driven out were allowed to stick around. And as they stuck around, they got stronger and they got more influential and they became a snare or a trap to the children of Israel. And they taught the children of Israel idolatry. They were their disciples and they taught them idolatry just as the culture disciples us and teaches us iniquity. The Canaanites taught the children of Israel, idolatry. They intermarried with God's people. They led them away from the Lord into idolatry. And they were strengthened as they grew in number and they waged war against the children of Israel, most notably the Philistines. And yet I take you back to the command. The command was clear from Deuteronomy 20. I'm giving you this land. Please let there be no compromise. Go in and destroy everyone and everything. And if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. You remember the man from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Saul. You remember why he was taken from being king? It was because he refused to destroy the Amalekites. He's going to war against Amalek. God says, go in, destroy him completely, kill Agag the king. Don't even keep any animals around. What does Saul do? He goes in, has a nice victory, keeps the king alive, and keeps some animals around for sacrifice. Now, as we look at this passage in Judges chapter 1, here's one thing that makes it even worse. And that is that the disobedient tribes probably felt pretty good about themselves, and they probably felt like they were successful. Here's the reason why I say this. They were victorious in battle but yet they made slaves out of the people that they defeated. In verse 28, we read this of Manasseh. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. In other words, they win the battle, but they do not follow through to drive the people out completely, but they make them hired slaves. Same thing happens in verse 30 with Zebulon. Same thing happens in verse 33 
with Naphtali, and we read it again in verse 35. One biblical commentator by the name of Dale Ralph Davis points out how them taking the people and putting them into forced labor was actually a sign of disobedience. Here's what Davis writes. Instead of expelling, which Israel was perfectly able to do, she put the Canaanites to forced labor and thus violated God's commands. Israel was clearly successful, though certainly disobedient. Pragmatic success and spiritual failure, a strange but possible combination. You can be successful and be disobedient at the same time, is what Davis is saying. He continues, Israel enjoys superiority but does not maintain fidelity. It is possible to display the marks of success and yet be a failure in the eyes of God. Christian success is not the same as pleasing God, end quote, and ouch. Let me take you back to Saul. Saul, I'm giving Amalek into your hand. Go in there, kill everybody, including the king. Don't even let the animals survive. Saul goes in, has a nice victory, takes the king captive, keeps some animals around for sacrifice. Congratulations, Saul, great win. And then Samuel shows up, and he says, what's going on here? And he says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23? The implied answer is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as the iniquity iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. In other words, I don't care that you won the battle. You didn't do what I asked you to do. See, in your life, everything might look good. You might be in perfect health. You might have a nice family. You might be well-respected. You might be enjoying success in your school or in your business. You might even be enjoying success in your ministry and still be classified as a failure in the great book of God because you are not obedient. Do you understand that God does not care about the results? He is only concerned with our obedience. Israel goes in. They are not obedient. They win, but they do not do what God tells them to do. Israel disobeyed, and guess who wasn't happy? Jesus wasn't happy, and Jesus tells them that he isn't happy. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus coming and meeting with the children of Israel. What we have here is a Christophany, or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, also known as the angel of the Lord. Here's what Jesus has to say about their partial obedience or their disobedience. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I, so this is the Lord, brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. 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 What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will drive them out before you 
I'm sorry. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare or a trap to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed to the Lord. Do you see the irony of what's happening here? Jesus goes to them and he says, you know what? I would never break my covenant with you, but as soon as you get into the land, you turn around and start making covenants with pagans in Canaan. And therefore, since you would not drive them out, from now on you are no longer going to be able to drive them out. What they're going to do is they're going to stick around and they're going to ruin you and they're going to destroy you and they're going to disciple you and they're going to be snares and they're going to be thorns. You left them here and now you're going to have to live with them. And how do the people respond? The people respond by crying. But the horse is already out of the barn, so there isn't much reason now to be closing the gate. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the greatest preacher of the 20th century, I listened to one of his sermons this morning, he, uh, he was a Welshman. He lived from 1899 until 1981. He said this about crying. It's very easy to make a Welshman cry, but it needs an earthquake to make him change his mind. Sometimes people who are crying are crying because they got caught, because they lost something. They're not crying in repentance. The people are very sad and very sorrowful now, but they had their opportunity. Partial obedience or disobedience always leads to tears, So how have we been saved? Well, here's how it works. There is a God. He is holy. He has standards. We have broken those standards. We've broken those standards by by nature. That is, there's something gravitational in us that wants to disobey God. There's something in us which is madly in love with ourselves, and we want to be God. We want to do what we want to do. We have sinned against him and that we have chosen to break his laws And we've told him, you can't tell me what to do. We have sinned and rebelled against him, yet amazingly, he loves us. And he does something to save us. He sends his son, Jesus, who comes to earth, dies in our place, pays for our sins, rises from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus Christ is alive. And if we call on him, he will save us. Save us, And we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and we'll go to heaven. Like, like Carol said earlier, we really have a very bright future. We will be with the Lord forever if we are saved. Amen. Hallelujah. That's how we're saved. But after we are saved, we are called to a life of holiness or a life of sanctification. And from this text, I want to proclaim to you that it is a radical call. And it requires extreme measures. And this is serious business. It is called the mortification of sin. What is mortification? It is what it sounds like. It means the murdering of sin, amputation to access to sin. A gentleman from Oxford by the name of John Owen, who lived from 1616 to 1683, a prolific Puritan writer, said, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Owen says, 
be killing sin or it will be killing you. You cannot remain passive and just sit there and let sin wail on you because sin hates you. It is after you. It will make you sad. It will make you stupid. It's coming after you and you just can't stand there in the corner and let it pound you. You have to be killing sin, Owen says, or it will be killing you. In the process of killing you, it hates you. It brings with it no joy. It is a snare. It is a trap. You have to eradicate it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. God says to Israel, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the power to take the land. Cash the checks. Go in and commit the Canaanites to absolute destruction. And for a variety of reasons, they say, no. They thought they knew better than God. Why in the world should we kill them when we can bring them into forced labor? You know, that's exactly what the serpent did to Eve in the Garden of Eden. God doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. Therefore, you don't have to listen to him. And therefore, since they did not care about what God had to say, they partially obeyed or disobeyed and only partially defeated these people rather than God doing what they said. The Bible says, with reference to our sin, we need to be radically active in amputating or mortifying sin and not giving ourselves an opportunity to commit it. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Every once in a while, I go on an unsuccessful diet. But when I am partially successful, what I will do is I will eradicate the ice cream from my home. Why? So that I do not have access to it. Right now there is ice cream in my home. Do you know why? Because I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. I'm not fighting this thing at all. Sin in your life. How serious are you about eradicating it? Total destruction of the Canaanites. Let's talk about the number one bane in the church today. It is, without question, I don't even know what's in second place, but it is pornography. We are being destroyed and weakened by pornography, and everybody, including children, have access to it. Now, Some people are quite artful in the way that they do not convince themselves that they are committing this sin in that the people that they are looking at are not completely naked and therefore it is not technically classified as pornography, but they are sexually explicit images. And as Jesus said, that if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It is destroying people on many levels, and the primary means by which it is coming to people is through their phone. They're carrying around a smartphone with no blocks and no accountability. Do you know why? Because they just don't care. They are not trying at all to beat this thing. And they take their phone, which gives them an endless supply of iniquity. 
And like the Israelites, they say, well, I have subjected it into forced labor. I use it to listen to sermons. I use it to keep up with all of the things that are happening in good churches around the world, and therefore I need to have it. Great victory. Nice compromise. No, the Bible says in Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Some of you have friends, and every time you are with this friend, they lead you into sin. And you say to yourself, well, I don't need to cut them off. I couldn't do that. I've known them my whole life. Israel wouldn't totally eradicate the Canaanites. Some of you go places, and every time you go to this place, it brings you down into sin. And so the logical thing to do is to tell yourself, don't go back. But you're going to continue to going back because you really don't care about holiness. Like Israel, your phone, your friend, your habit, it's thorns, it's a trap, it's a snare. At least Israel had the sensitivity and the conviction to weep. Any tears, any, any tears recently? Point number one was obedience. Point number two was partial obedience or disobedience. Now before we end, I just want to speak to you briefly about absolute obedience. Israel asked the question, who will go up for us? Without hesitation, God says it's going to be Judah. Why? Because this is a foreshadowing of absolute obedience. It is a foreshadowing of the one who would come from the tribe of Judah, who would go up to the cross in perfect obedience and die for our sins. Revelation 5, 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It is Jesus Christ that has complete and absolute obedience. And the only reason that we can have obedience over sin is because one from the tribe of Judah has died for our sins. In other words, the gospel is of first importance. And by the blood of the eternal covenant, he has been raised for our justification. In other words, the gospel is of first importance. And his Holy Spirit indwells us and convicts us and gives us power and desire to strive for obedience, we have a battle in front of us. And we have been equipped with the Word and with the Spirit and with the church. Do you have any interest in winning this battle? I mean, what a ridiculous thing if I'm just standing up here talking about how partial obedience is so dangerous. And, 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 and how Christ has been completely obedient, and we are to, to follow him, and you're sitting there listening, saying, Pastor, I, I agree with everything you say. In fact, it's not even that complex. You could have said it in much less time. I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't have any interest in doing anything that you have said. Oh, I say this to you because I love you. Sin will hurt you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Father in heaven, I pray for these dear people that I love, but that you love more than I do. Help them, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, to see the 
folly and the danger of partial obedience and give them, Lord, both the desire and, Lord, the ability to do your will and to obey you radically for the glory of Jesus Christ. Through the power of Jesus Christ, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.